You may be seated. Turn in your Bibles, please, to Revelation chapter 21. Revelation chapter 21. Go to the very end of your Bible and uh, then turn back one chapter, second to last chapter of the Bible, Revelation 21. Before we read our sermon text this morning, let me just point out two things. First of all, uh, and I can't remember if David mentioned this uh, earlier in the service, but I just wanted to underscore uh, that there is a letter in the bulletin from uh, Jason and Robin Ebuyer. Uh, the Ebuyers, if you remember, were here uh, not long ago. Uh, they are uh, one example of our international mission board missionaries, and they happen to be serving in the Isan region of Thailand. Some of you have been there. Uh, and you've seen some of the work and the progress that's being made for the gospel in that region of the world. And uh, I just think it's important that when we um, think about our involvement and our participation with the International Mission Board of the Southern Baptist Convention, that there are real people uh, who are connected with our church who are doing this work day in and day out. Sometimes with a big organization, it's easy for us to forget uh, that these are our, uh, members of our family, and, and the e-buyers uh, have been very faithful in keeping me uh, apprised and others apprised of what's going on with them. And so in a moment, we're going to spend some time praying for the e-buyers, and I'll let you read that letter. Um, you know, while, if you get bored while I'm preaching, you can read it, okay? Just joking. Um, but some of you are going to probably actually do that. So... <laughs> um, the other thing I want to point out is that one week from today, December 26th, uh, will be uh, the last uh, Sunday that David McClure will be uh, with us as a staff member. I'm sure in the future he'll be back. Uh, they only will be an hour away li uh, living in Granbury, um, but he will be preaching. And, uh, you know, it's kind of a joke among preachers that when you um, aren't really prepared, you get up and you say, I think I'm just going to share my heart. Um, and uh, sometimes people say that, and they really are going to do that, and it's all good, okay? But it's kind of a joke because, um, you know, sometimes you get up and you're not sure what you're going to say. So you, you say, well, I'm just going to share my heart today. But I actually did ask David, David, share your heart with us um, because uh, of his experience here and his relationship with us. I hope he does uh, do that very thing, and I'm looking forward to it myself, and I hope that you make it a priority uh, to be here and to uh, spend some time with the McClure's and to be served by him. All right, with that being said, let's go ahead and look at chapter 21 of the book of Revelation, and we'll begin reading in verse 1. John says, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. 
And he who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. Also he said, Write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. And he said to me, It is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty I will give from the spring of the water of life without payment. The one who conquers will have this heritage, and I will be his God, and he will be my son. But as for the cowardly, the faithful, uh, the faithless, the detestable, as for murderers, the sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars, their portion will be in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. Then came one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls full of the seven last plagues and spoke to me, saying, Come, I will show you the bride, the wife of the Lamb. And he carried me away in the spirit to a great high mountain and showed me the holy city Jerusalem coming down out of heaven from God, having the glory of God, its radiance like a most rare jewel, like a jasper, clear as crystal. It had a great high wall with 12 gates, and at the gates, 12 angels, and on the gates, the names of the 12 tribes of the sons of Israel were inscribed. On the east, three gates, and on the north, three gates, and on the south, three gates, and on the west, three gates. And the wall of the city had 12 foundations, and on them were the 12 names of the 12 apostles of the Lamb. And the one who spoke with me had a measuring rod of gold to measure the city and its gates and walls. The city lies four square, its length the same as its width. And he measured the city with his rod, 12,000 stadia. Its length and width and height are equal. He also measured its walls, 144 cubits by human measurement, which is also an angel's measurement. The wall was built of jasper, while the city was pure gold, clear as glass. The foundations of the wall of the city were adorned with every kind of jewel. The first was jasper, the second sapphire, the third agate, the fourth emerald, the fifth onyx, uh, the sixth carnelian, the seventh chrysolite, the eighth beryl, the ninth topaz, the tenth chrysoprase, the eleventh jacinth, the twelfth amethyst. And the twelve gates were twelve pearls, each of the gates made of a single pearl, and the streets of the city was pure gold transparent as glass, and I saw no temple in the city, for its temple is the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb. And the city has no need of sun or moon to shine on it, for the glory of God gives it light, and its lamp is the Lamb. By its light will the nations walk, and the kings of the earth will bring their glory into it, and its gates will never be shut by day, and there will be no night there. They will bring into it the glory and the honor of the nations, but nothing unclean will ever enter it, nor anyone who does what is detestable or false, but only those who are written in the Lamb's book of life. May it be so. Would you pray with me? God, our minds are too limited to be able to wrap around this wonderful future. So I just want to, first of all, thank you for bringing it down to our level where we can see at least a little bit of a glimpse of the glory of what you're going to do in your world. 
God, we thank you that this is what you're doing. You're bringing all things to a goal that you have set for all things from before the foundation of the world and a goal that will certainly be met. And that you have, you've, you've welcomed human beings, sinners, into this reality through Jesus Christ because he became a man. And we want to thank you for uh, allowing us to live in the hope of this and actually enjoy the reality that we have this as our inheritance in heavenly places in Christ, even now. Thank you, Father. And Lord, I pray that you would lift up the heart and the, uh, the, the hands of our brother and sister in Christ, Jason and Robin Ebire, as they continue develop their, to develop their language skills and to form relationships and to move forward in their ministry in the Isan region of Thailand. I pray that you would strengthen them to do this work. I pray that you would uh, provide for uh, the funding of the International Mission Board through this church and many others like us. I pray that you would, um, that you would just glorify your name through this ministry. Father, we want to thank you for David and Kathy, and as they continue to make preparations to go through this transition, I pray that you would strengthen their hands and that you would give them joy and that all these different steps that need to be taken would be a memory that that reminds them of your provision and your goodness. I pray that you would enable us to honor them and to thank you for them and to do so in a way that uh, encourages them to, to be strong in the Lord and in the power of his might. And Lord, I pray that you would reveal to us uh, your truth from your word today. Help us to understand and apply and live in this truth. Father, we pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. In the third chapter of the Bible, we're given a passing glimpse of God's intentions for his creation. We're told in Genesis chapter 3, verse 8, that Adam and Eve heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. Do you remember reading that in Genesis chapter 3? It's figurative language for sure. What would, have, what, what would that have actually sounded like or felt like? I, I don't know. But the point is that even after they had ruined themselves, even after they had broken covenant, even after they had broken the commands of God, God still took the initiative to pursue them. His desire was to be with Adam and Eve even when they felt inclined to run away, even when they had thrown it all away. His longing was to have fellowship with his human creatures. And friends, this morning we need to understand that that yearning has never gone away. Think about the time of the Exodus. The children of Israel are slaves in Egypt. He rescues them. He brings them to Mount Sinai. Do you remember this? We went through it a year ago. He enters into covenant with them. Then he immediately invites the elders of the people up on top of a mountain to share a meal with the Almighty God. Amazing. And then in the next chapter, he initiates this grand plan to build a glorious royal residence in the middle of their camp, in the middle of the desert, where he makes a promise. He says, I will meet with you there. He calls it the tent of meeting. 
Years later, the tent of meeting becomes a permanent structure, the temple, a reminder of his presence in the midst of his people. And, and, and then we come to a chapter like the one that I just read a few moment, uh, moments ago that describes the end of all things, the moment when all of God's objectives have been realized and all of his intentions for his creatures have come true. And what is the picture that God chooses to paint? What is the thing that he wishes, wishes us to take away? The dwelling place of God is with man. From cover to cover, the Bible makes it clear that God is after one thing. He desires to have close, full fellowship with human beings in a glorified creation. That's what he wants. And so it makes sense that the story of Christmas would kind of fit right in to that uh, reality. In the first chapter of Matthew, an angel visits a young girl to announce the miraculous arrival of a son conceived uh, through the, the, the miraculous oversight of the Holy Spirit. And Matthew tells us that all of this takes place, the, the, the conception of Jesus in the womb of Mary, all of it takes place in order to fulfill what the Lord has spoken by the prophet, behold, a virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel which is God with us. Why did Jesus come into the world? Why did the word of God become flesh? Why did the only begotten son of God become a human being? To live for us, to die for us, and ultimately to do the very thing that God has been working toward from the beginning of creation. The word became flesh to be with us. Jesus embodied this. Uh, ideal very well. He ate meals with tax collectors and sinners. He touched the untouchable lepers. Jesus washed the feet of his disciples. He invited them to place their fingers in his nail scars. Jesus cooked meals for them. He uh, walked with them on the paths of Palestine. But as we celebrate Jesus' first coming, it's also very important for us to look forward to his second coming. That's why I call this time of year Advent. I know that might be kind of a a weird word for some of you, but that word, at least in my mind, reminds me, it's a word that means arrival or coming or, or, or appearance, and it reminds me that when we celebrate Christmas, we are not only celebrating the first advent of the Son of God, his coming as a baby, but we are also looking forward to his second advent, when he will come and be with us forever. This morning, that's the advent that I'd like for us to focus on because it shows us Jesus' end game, his purposes, his goals. It shows us all the ways that God in Christ intends to be with us. Now, our passage is one of the richest in the entire Bible, and there's no way we can go through this whole thing and like mine all the things that are there. You've got to do that on your own, uh, or maybe one day we'll come back to it. But what I want to do is just highlight five ways in which this passage shows that Jesus, the Son of God, come in the flesh, desires to be with us. And so in the first place, consider with me first of all, he desires to be with us intimately. He desires to be with us intimately. Now if you're like me, you might not even like that word, intimate. It sounds kind of 
touchy-feely, a little too touchy-feely for me. In fact, it's, it's a word that we use euphemistically for a physical relationship. So we're kind of like, whoa, is that the right word? Is that the right concept that we want to communicate here? Does God really want to be with us intimately? Let me show you a few things in this chapter. First of all, did you notice what is missing? What does John say in verse 22 of chapter 21 is missing from the New Jerusalem? There's no temple. There's no temple. And John frames it like it's a good thing. No temple. I mean, wouldn't it be cool? In my mind, it'd be cool if in the middle of this wonderful city with all the streets of gold and the gems and the, you know, the jasper and the chrysoprase and all the stuff that I don't know what it even looks like, uh, wouldn't it be cool if there was this massive temple right in the town square in the middle of the city, like this huge cathedral with all kinds of cool architecture and stuff? I mean, wouldn't that be wonderful? But John says, oh, there's no temple. Oh, well. But if you catch some of the other details mentioned in the chapter, you see why that is. It's not because God just wanted to change it up or because he had like a minimalist aesthetic and he was going after a certain like look or something like that. No, there's a reason why there's no temple. Uh, it's because this entire Pluto-sized city, by the way, this city is the size of Pluto. Did you know that? The entire city is itself the sanctuary of God. Notice what the loud voice proclaims in verse 3. The dwelling place of God is with man. Now, in Greek, that's one word. Dwelling place is just one word, and it's the same word used in the Greek translation of the Old Testament to refer to the tabernacle in the book of Exodus. It's, in other words, you could say, the tabernacle of God is with man. He will tabernacle with them, and they will be, they will be his people. And then notice the dimensions of the city. It's the same length and depth and height. It's this perfect cube. And that's important because in the tabernacle and in the temple built by Solomon, both of which are, remember, the tabernacle and the temple, just a reminder here, they are patterned after the, the throne room of God in heaven that he showed to Moses on Mount Sinai. Think about that. So those are patterned after the, the sanctuary of God. And in every one of those instances, in the pattern and then in the tabernacle and then in the temple, the most holy place, the holy of holies, is the same dimensions. It's a perfect cube. In other words, the new Jerusalem is a cosmic, final, consummated fulfillment of the very most holy place envisioned centuries before. The place where only one man could go once per year, quaking with fear, shrouded in smoke from the incense. Now that place is the dwelling place of God with man. That's intimacy. But we can even go further than this. Did you notice how the city is described? It's described more than once as a bride adorned for her husband. Uh, the bride, the, the wife of the lamb. And if you transport yourself out of our Western context where the bride, you know, most weddings, the bride wears a white dress. And, uh, you know, that's pretty normal in our day and age. Uh, but if you go back to antiquity, you can, uh, the, the world of antiquity, you can see the city is actually decked out in jewels and gold like a bride would be in their time and in that culture. So the kind of relationship God desires to have with his people is illustrated in, in many places in the Bible, but especially here with the, the, the language of a bride and a groom, the language of marriage. That is intimacy. 
So what I'm saying is that in view of the fact that the very last few paragraphs of Scripture describes God's ideal future as a future in which he dwells in intimate, extremely close relationship with us as his people. And then I read that in light of everything else that the Bible says about this particular topic. How many times God patiently, graciously pursued and pressed in, even when we didn't deserve it, even when we didn't want it, then that tells me that this is one of the reasons why Jesus came to earth in the the first place. Why did the word become flesh? Because God wants to be with us intimately. Now think about what that means. Think about the individuals that you read about in Scripture who are really close to God. Uh, Enoch is a man that's mentioned in the book of Genesis. Does anybody know anything about Enoch? What did he do? We're just told he walked with God, remember? And he was so close to God that, as one preacher put it, uh, you're walking with God, you get to the end of your conversation, and God says, hey, we're we're closer to my home than we are to your home. Why don't you just come home with me? I mean, can you imagine being that close to God? Or, or how about Moses? Uh, Moses got to behold the, the trailing glory of God on Mount Sinai. I mean, you can't even begin to imagine. Moses was called the friend of God. Can you imagine being that close? Or Hannah. Hannah prayed so fervently that the high priest thought she was on something. Or, or Mary. Uh, who finds out she's with child by a miraculous move of the Holy Spirit, and unlike her cousin, Zachariah, who happened to be a clergyman, she didn't push back. She just erupts in this song of worship right then and there. I mean, she was close to God. And and I wish I had that. I kind of like envy that to a point. But here's what this passage is saying. This is saying, what we're, what we're being told here is that God desires and he is going to have a closer relationship with all of us, all the people who are in Christ, than even those people who are described in Scripture. So if you think about the person who has a closer friendship and relationship with God than anybody else that you know, I mean your grandmother or your mother or somebody that's mentored you and discipled you in the faith, then God is going to have a closer relationship with you than even that person can imagine. God wants to be with us. He wants to be with us intimately. You say, well, what does that mean for me today? It means there's a very specific way that you can have a foretaste of the glories of heaven. Like you can actually begin to to walk in some of the things that make the new creation wonderful. How do you do that? By knowing God. By getting to know God closer. By going, growing in this knowledge, we get this right. The best, most important things in life have to do with the persons in our life that we care about. I mean, think about this. I enjoy going hiking. It's just one of the things I like to do. I'm not like an avid hiker, but I like to do it. And yet, there are a lot of places I would like to go see, hike to, but I would rather walk fewer miles if I can, walk, if I can go hiking with my son than to just go by myself and go see all the sights. Why? Because he's, my relationship with him is more important than doing that thing. And, of course, one day it's going to be the opposite. He's going to have to decide whether he wants to hang back with his old man or not, you know? And the reason for that is because God has made us to appreciate and value relationships over just about anything else. And to know God, the one who made both the forest that I'm hiking in and the person that I'm hiking with, that is the only real fulfillment of that desire that we all have in all of our hearts. 
So what I'm saying is don't deny yourself a foretaste of heaven. Don't trade in the opportunity to know God more with a cheap replacement. Say, how would I do that? We trade in an intimate relationship with the God of the universe for a cheap replacement when we make God in our image rather than getting to know him as he reveals himself to be. Don't we do that? We say, I I hear people say things like, you know, I like to think of God as fill in the blank. What are we doing? We're saying, (laughs) we're we're making stuff up and we're projecting those things onto God and saying something like, I I, I just, here's what's on my wish list and so I'm just going to put this on God uh, as if, you know, he's really that way, even though I don't know him that well. You don't, you don't like it when people do that to you. I mean, uh, imagine somebody does that to you. You don't like it. Hey, I made you your favorite meal, chicken fried steak. Oh, well, actually, I, you know, fried food, I'm not really into that. It kind of makes me feel sick to my stomach. Really shouldn't be eating that. Shh, 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 shh. Here, you like it. It's one of your favorites. Enjoy it. No, we don't like that when people do that to us, so why do we do it to God? This is the kind of thing we do. What would make me feel God uh, feel good right now if it, if, if it were true about God? Instead of, what does God want me to know about himself? When we project our own imaginations onto the God who actually exists and reveals himself to us, we're shortchanging ourselves. Here's another way we do it. We let an aspect of the Christian life become the totality of the Christian life, serving others. Uh, Intellectual knowledge of sound doctrine and what the Bible says, wise living, feeling good. Listen, the Christian life is not primarily about sound doctrine. It's not primarily about feeling worshipful. It's not primarily about getting out there and serving other people. It's, It's somewhat about all those things, but primarily it is about knowing God. And when we know God and the greater we know him, the greater will be our understanding of what the new creation is going to be like because that's where God is taking us. One day, Jesus became a man. And because he did that, he lived for us and died for us. God will be with us intimately, and we can even begin to enjoy that reality now. In the second place, consider with me, he also desires to be with us exclusively. He desires to be with us exclusively. One of the most important takeaways we can walk away with from this chapter is the reality that not everybody is going to be in the new Jerusalem. I mean, look at verse 8. As for the cowardly, the faithless, the detestable, as for murderers, the sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars, their portion will be in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. Verse 27 reflects on the same truth. Nothing impure or unclean is going to be allowed within the walls of the city. Now, that is important. And it might not seem very gracious to you. Cowardly faithless, someone who says they follow Jesus, but then when it gets unpopular, when it gets costly, they quickly disown him? They're not allowed? Murderers? Okay, that's pretty bad. I guess I can understand that. The sexually immoral? You know, that's a word that refers to any kind of sexual activity outside of marriage. Any. Not just cheating on your spouse. I mean, that sounds kind of old-fashioned. That's kind of like almost Old Testament. Is this really a book in the New Testament of the Bible? 
sorcerers, people who manipulate the spiritual realm in order to get what they want, idolaters, liars? Man. I mean, is God being kind of legalistic here? I thought God loved everybody. What about grace? We have the wrong idea of grace often, don't we? The reason this seems so harsh to us is because we have adjusted our values to match the value systems of the world rather than adjusting our values to the values that God presents in the Holy Scripture. By the way, that's often how real legalism works in real life. We make up rules that we think we can follow, or we pick and choose the rules from other places that we think we can follow, and we emphasize those and ignore the others that we know we can't meet. But make no mistake, God's not going to be mocked and made fun of by his creatures. He's not going to tolerate people spitting in his face. And and you need to understand, this is a good thing for you. I mean, think about it. It's good that God is exclusive, that he excludes certain types of people. Can you imagine living in paradise in this perfect new creation, and yet all these people all around are abusing drugs and alcohol? I mean, what kind of a new creation would that be? Or living in heaven, but parents are treating their kids like trash. I don't know if I'd want to call that heaven. Can you imagine living in the new creation, but people are lying to your face, or, or, or husbands are cheating on their wives, or something like that? That wouldn't be heaven. That's what we live with right now, guys. And so what this means for me, practically, is that God desires more for me, and I must make it my life's goal to ensure that I am in the new Jerusalem and not outside of the new Jerusalem. Like, I've got to understand from the Bible what it means to make sure that I know that I'm going to be there. It's got to happen. Notice what we're told in verse 7. By the way, the way that we know that we're in the new creation is not to be the opposite of the liars and the murderers, etc., you see, that's, it's too late for that. No, what does he say in verse 7? Who gets to go? Who inherits this? The one who conquers will have this heritage. Who ends up joining Jesus in the New, uh, new Jerusalem? Uh, the one who conquers. And uh, without getting into a, a long uh, description of, of how that phrase is used in the book of Revelation... Basically, the one who conquers in the imagery of the book of Revelation, it's this recurring theme that refers to persons who persevere in faith when that faith is tested. So they keep believing even when it's not easy to believe. That's what John is talking about in the book of Revelation. So in other words, the way that I can know that I'm going to enjoy this inheritance is by staying in the faith even when that faith is tested. Now, None of us can see into another person's heart. It's hard enough to see in our own hearts and and understand what's going on there. But understand, real faith isn't just making an assertion. Oh, I believe in Jesus. You just said that, but does it really mean that you actually do? It's not just making a profession of faith or praying the sinner's prayer. Jesus, please forgive me. No, real faith involves a transformation of the heart. It actually looks like something in our lives, even when the going gets tough. When temptations rage or when trials turn up the heat. So what I mean to say is that if, if you're a young person, And you sing all the songs and you learn all the verses, but the minute you're away from mom and dad, the minute you're away from the youth pastor, you're like totally no different from the world. 
then you have no reason to believe that your faith is the real thing. It may not be the real thing at all. Because when it's put to the test, it doesn't hold up. But if when life throws you a curveball, you keep believing. If when doubts whisper, you remember what you know about the Lord. If you live a life that's characterized by consistent repentance, by perseverance and belief when trials come, then you're living the lifestyle of a person who conquers and you have strong evidence to show that your home, your in your inheritance is in the new Jerusalem. So what I'm saying is, if, if you don't know that you're going to be there, believe in Jesus. And if you're a believer in Jesus, don't stop. Keep believing. God became a man because he desires to be with us intimately. He desires to be with us exclusively. But on the other hand, in the third place, notice with me that he actually desires to be with us inclusively too. Here's what I mean. What I mean is that while it's remarkable to think about who God excludes, it's also important to note who he includes. God isn't picking the, the few worthy VIPs out of the masses, like all the people who are really uh, really special or something like that. No, he opens his arms wide. Notice who is included in verse 6. Who gets to go into the new creation? To the thirsty. To the thirsty I will give from the spring of the water of life without payment. What is the condition of being a part of the new creation? You just have to be thirsty. You have to have a need. And folks, that's all of us. Every single one of us is in that place. In fact, God is so inclusive in his desire to have fellowship with human beings that he actually includes both Jew and Gentile in the same city. Uh, now, for some of you, this is going to sound a little bit like inside baseball, but there are some theologians out there. And uh, I just want to say, people have made much of the distinction between Israel, the people of God during the time of the Old Testament, and the church, on the other hand, the people of God in the New Testament, and uh, many, maybe even a handful down to this very day, would emphasize that God had two programs for these two different peoples, and that that program persists even into eternity. Israel's on one program, and, and the church is on another program. And yet, what God seems to be saying here in this passage is that that's not what he has in mind. Look at verses 12 through 14. Look at, what, look at the way the city's described. It's got 12 gates. And what's inscribed on the gates? The names of the 12 tribes of Israel, right? And then it's got these 12 foundation stones uh, underneath the wall. And what's inscribed on the 12 foundation stones? The, 12, the names of the 12 apostles, right? So what you have is a city, one city, and like to get in, you've got to walk through this gate and over a foundation that's got a, the name of the tribes of Israel, and the name of the apostles, the founders of the church, uh, under the lordship of Jesus Christ. And so what that tells me is that God intends to bring all of his people from all times and all places together in the new creation, whether they live 500 years before the time of Christ or 500 years after the time of Christ or any century for that matter, and that all who are in Christ will inherit the blessings of this new Jerusalem without distinction from one another. I mean, it's just going to be one massive people from every tribe and tongue and nation and time. And then look what else happens in verses 24 and following. 
This is amazing. The gates stay open. And the nations of the earth are able to bring their cultural treasures into the city to bless the residents. So think about this. You've got Jews and Gentiles from every area and every epoch. And all the flashes of goodness from the world's cultures are being shared in fellowship with God and with one another. And yes, in a very important sense, God is exclusive. He excludes suffering. He excludes evil from the city. But in another very important sense, he's being very inclusive, isn't he? He wants to welcome all these things. So think about this. Here is a place where the best hoagies and cheesesteaks from Philadelphia, the best tacos from Tijuana, the best sumtam from Thailand, the best beefsteak ranchero from Texas, and yes, that chicken fried steak, and other non-food treasures are going to be brought into one city. Enjoyed by people of every color, size, and shape, and they will share their perspectives and their gifts with one another in unfeigned compassion and creativity, and God is going to love it all. He wants to be with us inclusively. So God, friends, he is not an ethnocentrist. He doesn't have like a favorite culture that he likes more than all the others. He's certainly not a racist. He doesn't even have a favorite country. Now, it's okay for us to be thankful for the country that we came from. That's fine. But we need to understand that God is able to appreciate what's good in all of them. And that means that there's nothing about you that disqualifies you from enjoying all of it, except for one thing, the sin that Jesus died to take away. I wonder if our church is a reflection of that kind of inclusiveness. Is it true that all are welcome here at Indian Creek Baptist Church? That we appreciate the contribution and the culture and the creative gifts of every person God brings across our path? Or have we allowed a subtle form of self-centered pride to creep in? Have we become cantankerous and grumpy? It seems to me that what God is allowing to take place in our area, gathering people in our city from all across the United States, maybe even the world, is giving us an opportunity. It's tempting to feel afraid, to feel anxious about that, to worry about waning influence or crowded streets, but I wonder if we could think differently as believers and learn to be thankful, not only for the things that feel like home, but for the gifts and the treasures of all the peoples that God brings across my path. I wonder what we might learn. I wonder how we might be blessed if we, are, if we allow ourselves to be as inclusive as God intends to be in the new creation. Why did the Son of God become a man? Because he desires to be with us inclusively. In the fourth place, though, notice with me that he desires to be with us finally. He desires to be with us finally. What I'm saying is that the reason why Jesus came to earth the reason why he lived in our place and became the obedient son that the father desired, the reason why he died to take the curse we earned upon, our, upon himself is because he desired to bring the story of the world to a good and glorious final conclusion. 
Once he brings all this about, once Jesus returns and Satan is destroyed and all the wicked are cast away and the universe is unmade and then remade, the goodness of the new creation will never end. This is one of the wonderful things about God's fellowship with us in the new creation. It is forever. It won't be like our favorite movie franchises. You know what I'm talking about? The hero, he, he, he puts himself in harm's way. And he goes through all these difficulties and he almost dies and he survives by the skin of his teeth and, and he defeats the villain and, and you see the bad guy in the back of a squad car and he's driven away and then maybe the, something exciting happens, there's an award ceremony or someone gets married or like uh, he, he, he kisses a girl or something like that and, and everything's great. But then just before the credits roll, the scene cuts to the dark prison cell, and there's the villain, and he's nursing his wounds, and he's planning, and he's scheming, and you think, there's a sequel. (laughs) I'm going to go see that when it comes out. And what we need to understand is that the story of the world isn't going to end like a cheap action movie. There is no sequel There is no scene just before the credits where the villain is seen rising from the ashes. There is no asterisk. There is no exception clause. This wonderful fellowship that God is planning for his people is going to last forever and no one will take it away. Life is a journey. Growth is important. Movement and change can certainly bring enjoyment and interest to a tedious life. But there's going to come a time when we stop journeying and we reach the destination. The goal toward which all this movement and growth is working. You know, we don't have the, the capability to appreciate this. Our physical bodies, they do this thing. We readjust to our experiences, don't we? I mean, think about the time, uh, the first time you gave your child ice cream. Yes, we are those parents. We give our child ice cream, you know. I hope that's okay with everybody. Uh, When they were very young, we gave them ice cream. And uh, you shove the spoon in their mouth, and they're squirming. They don't like it. It's unfamiliar. It's cold. And then all, just for a second, it's just there. And then all of a sudden, their eyes light up, and they're going, yeah, I love this stuff. I love it. Give me more. And that, that moment of their first taste of ice cream is just priceless. Now, I love ice cream probably more than any other dessert, and I know everything's about food today. I apologize. I don't know what happened. But I also know the last time I ate ice cream, I didn't respond like that. Why is that? It's, is it because the ice cream, ice cream, they just don't make ice cream like they used to anymore? I don't think so. I don't think that's it. No, I think we just have, we deal with the law of diminishing returns, don't we? We don't enjoy ice cream as much the second or third or 300th time. And this is one of the reasons why we tell, our, uh, tell ourselves life's a journey. It's because we want to look for something new and exciting to repeat the experience of the new and exciting thing that we remember. But you have to understand, in the new creation, we aren't going to be limited by that law of diminishing returns. We will have the capacity to appreciate all the gifts that God has given us without the weakness of our current state. So like every scoop of ice cream will be like that first scoop of ice cream. We will really get to see and experience and feel and know what it's like. Again, it's going to be wonderful. Death is going to be no more that grim, cold reality that she's not coming back, that he's not coming back, that kind of feeling, that dread is going to be over and done with. 
The final chapter for all believers is an unending, unlimited life of fellowship with God and one another. Christ came to earth to be with us. He desires to be with us intimately, exclusive of evil, inclusive of all who are thirsty from every tribe and nation to be with us finally. And in the fifth place, notice with me, he desires to be with us gloriously. He desires to be with us gloriously. If you read a chapter like Revelation 21, and you're like me, like you overthink things. <laughs> the temptation for some of us is to read a chapter like this and to just kind of start to pick it apart. How big are the walls? How large are the dimensions of the What color is Jasper? And that has some value to it. But what you don't want to do is break down the details so meticulously that you lose the grandeur and the glory of it all. Like, there's a sense in which I'm saying, carnelian? I guess I'll find out. You know, I don't know what that looks like, but I, I look forward to the day when I get to see it. It is going to be awesome. It's, this is going to be a massive garden city. We'll be able to enjoy all the goodness of the good earth. We'll have no sorrow, no pain, no mourning, no grief. Even the memories of pain today will be a source of rejoicing because we'll get to see all the ways that God used that grief in our lives. Your work won't be wasted. You'll see the fruit of your toil. Your communication won't be misunderstood. You won't be ashamed anymore. You won't be at odds with anybody else. You won't feel the need to hide. You won't need to hurry up and get the project done. You won't have a limited budget. You won't be rushed. You won't be bored. You'll appreciate everything because you'll know it to be what it really is, a declaration of the glory of God. Like he's going to be with us and it's going to be glorious. And all the wonderful realities of the new creation will be yours if you're in Christ because the goal of Christmas, the goal of Christ coming into the world will have been reached and God will be with us. This is why the word became flesh. To live for us, to die for us, and to be with us. That's a reality that will be consummated in the future. But friends, it's been inaugurated today. Like it's already been bought and paid for. It's already been won. And the whole of our inheritance is ours in heavenly places in Christ. And we get the down payment of it. We get the Holy Spirit. We get the community of the faithful. But all of it's ours. And friends, that is what we celebrate when we go to celebrate communion in a few moments. This is what we celebrate that Jesus Christ actually gave us himself, his body, his blood, so that one day we could have true and real communion with him. Now, we could never show and display that fully and wonderfully like, like God intends to show us one day, but we can see it by faith. Would you pray with me now? And let's prepare our hearts.